Hi everyone, I'm your host NG and welcome to the 30th episode of the podcast, Sounds About Right, audiobooks to help us understand the world. On this episode, I was joined by Mikko Hupanin. He's a cybersecurity expert with experience in the industry spanning over 30 years and is the author of the book, If It's Smart, It's Vulnerable. In the book, he delivers an eye-opening exploration of the best and the worst things the internet has given us, from instant connectivity between any two points on the globe to organised ransomware gangs. The net has truly been the mixed blessing. He also explores the transformative potential of the future of the internet, as well as those things that threaten its continued existence, including government surveillance, censorship, organised crime, and more. It was great discussing the book with Miko. Hope you enjoyed the episode. cyber security professional with a career expanding over 30 years where you've worked at F-Secure. In your opinion and from what you've seen, how has the internet changed the world for the better and for the worse? We are living in the middle of the biggest technological revolution we've ever seen. The world is changing right now faster than ever before. But the thing about big revolutions is that when we are living in the middle of these revolutions, it's kind of hard to see just how big and how important they are. One example I use in my book to try to give some perspective is that if you imagine a future historian writing a history book about our time, it's quite obvious that you know one of the most important things our generations will be remembered for is that we were the first generations who got online. That's how important it is. The mankind walked this planet for 100,000 years offline. We got online during our time, and now we will be online forever. And that changes everything for the better and everything for the worse. Internet is the best thing and the worst thing which has happened during our time. Considering things that we can and can't predict, one thing I found interesting is that you actually predicted in the 1990s that virus writers will one day make money from their attacks. When did this change actually begin? The first malware and virus samples I analyzed myself were in 1991. And back then we were just fighting teenage boys who were writing viruses for fun. The motives of the early virus writers were very simple. They wanted to cause mayhem, create destruction. They were just curious. They wanted to see how far their virus might spread. But pretty early on, I started thinking that this could be much, much worse. These creators of malware, viruses, exploits, backdoors, they might be doing this professionally. They might be having different motives. One day they might be making money with malware. And that then happened starting 2003. Because around 2003, we started seeing botnet masters, malware writers who were in control of large amounts of infected home computers to start to sell access to those infected home computers to email spammers. And spammers were paying money for infected home computers because then they could use those home computers to send email spam and then slowly but surely we've gone deeper and deeper into the world of organized cybercrime with things like banking trojans, keyloggers stealing credit card numbers, 
uh, backdoors gaining access to cryptocurrency exchanges, business email compromise attacks, and maybe most importantly for the last couple of years, ransomware, where companies and home users get hit by attacks which encrypt their own files and own data, and then you have to pay a Bitcoin ransom to regain access to your own data. And you did an experiment where you actually bought the things that was being advertised in the spams. Could you speak or touch on this? Because I think that would be something that a lot of people would be interested to know what happened. Yeah, that's true. We did a cooperation with a journalist. He was interested in the origins of spam emails, like where exactly are these coming from? And if you actually buy the products which are being advertised in spam emails, do you actually get them? And if you pay with a credit card, are they going to steal your credit card? So we did test purchases. We set up fake accounts, fake names, fake email addresses, copies of real working credit card and we created unique credit card numbers which were used for no other purpose mm. and then we purchased pirated copies of windows and viagra clone and cigarettes and fake watches and we were really surprised because we got everything we ordered for it it was all delivered the email addresses we were using did not end up on any spam email lists, which is surprising, and there was no fraud. We weren't charged any extra, and the credit card numbers did not get any fraud on them either. One of the products we ordered never arrived, but they never charged us either. So we were surprised how well it actually worked. And of course, I don't recommend anybody to order anything from spam. The better spam works, the bigger the problem gets. But that was our experience in actually testing out how well it works. Absolutely. Even myself listening to the audiobook, I was very surprised. I, I genuinely, after all these years, thought that spam emails were some sort of scam. But to hear that you actually managed to get some, like most, if not most of the products that you... Well, actually, we would have gotten everything uh, except we didn't get the Rolex, mm. the fake watch. It was stopped at the customs and they actually destroyed the watch, <laughs> which was a pity. Whilst listening to the audiobook, I quickly became aware that you're the creator of quite a couple of terms. The first I want to ask you about is, what are cybercrime unicorns? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I came up with this term maybe five years ago when I was doing some talk in some conference. And I was speaking about the biggest and the most powerful and the wealthiest organized cybercrime gangs, which are all Russian gangs. And... The term I used was cybercrime unicorns because I wanted to emphasize just how rich these gangs are becoming. Startup unicorns is the term we use for technology startup companies which are valued to be over a billion dollars in valuation. So cybercrime unicorns are cybercrime gangs which are which which hold wealth of over a billion dollars. Now Five years ago, this wasn't very realistic. The wealthiest cybercrime gangs five years ago had a couple of hundreds of thousands or maybe you know half a million in their wealth. The problem is that over the last five years, the amount of money that cybercriminals are making with ransomware and other attacks has roughly doubled every year. And to make matters worse, these criminal gangs don't keep their wealth in pounds or euros or dollars, 
No, they keep it in Bitcoin. And if you had half a million dollars in Bitcoin five years ago, you are a billionaire today. So these gangs have become much more powerful and much more wealthy, almost automatically, because they like to keep their wealth in cryptocurrencies because it's so much harder to trace where the money goes when it's not in real world currencies. And is it fair to say that cryptocurrency is the currency of criminals? Absolutely, it is. And it's a great example on how technology isn't neutral. I touch upon this in a couple of different ways in my book. One thing I note is that when we invent something, we cannot uninvent it. We cannot put the cat back into the bag. Once you invent something, then it has been invented. And the only way we can try to limit the potential damage that invention could cause is by laws and regulations. And that's always very difficult. Great example of that is encryption. Encryption is awfully useful for all of us when we need to do secure transactions like banking online, for example. But it's also very, very dangerous when criminals and extremists and terrorists use strong encryption because they cannot be monitored or investigated. So it's an example of technology which is both good and bad, and we cannot regulate it. If you make strong encryption illegal, then law-abiding citizens won't have strong security. But of course, criminals still have access to this technology because of course they're going to break the laws. You cannot limit what the criminals do by passing laws because that's what the criminals do. And when we look at cryptocurrencies, there's plenty of similar examples. Bitcoin maybe not be the best example because there's plenty of perfectly normal people who have Bitcoin because they've invested and are speculating with the value of Bitcoin. When we look at some of the more anonymous cryptocurrencies, maybe, for example, Monero, I've never really seen Monero used for anything else than trading access to botnets or selling stolen information or selling drugs or selling stolen weapons. It's an example of technology which I don't think is very neutral. I think, from my perspective, it's used much more for bad than for good. Hmm. And there's also the term Hooperman's Law, which is linked to the name of this book. Would you mind speaking on how this came about? So the name of the book is that if it's smart, it's vulnerable. And that is, in effect, the Hooperman Law. It's a reference to smart devices or connected devices or IoT devices. When we add functionality and connectivity to everyday devices, they become smart, like a smart TV or a smart watch. But at the very same time, they also become vulnerable. And the example I always use here is my wristwatch. I have an old mechanical Omega wristwatch, which I carry every day, which runs no code, which has no CPU, which has no connectivity, which is unhackable. You <laughs> cannot hack my watch because there's nothing to hack. And then you look at the smartwatches that are very popular nowadays. Now, they might be designed to be very secure and safe, but in the end, they run code. They are online. They can be hacked. There's no way for us to create completely unhackable devices if they run code, because the code is written by humans. And we humans, we make mistakes. So it is a very pessimistic law, but it's also true. Do we include other smart devices beyond laptops, such as, as you said, smartwatches and mobile phones in the conversation when it comes to cybersecurity enough, because considering how much these things are now in our possession, I still feel as though a lot of the conversation is still centered around computers and networks as opposed to mm -hmm. the other smart devices. Yep, very true. I've been a computer security guy all my life. 
I've been doing this for more than 30 years, and I've always thought that I'm a computer security guy, so my job is to secure computers. And when I think about computers, I think about laptops and desktops. Slowly but surely, I've come to realize that everything is run by computers. Not just the smart devices that we have in our homes, but the whole society. Uh, critical infrastructure, every factory, electricity generation and distribution, water purification plants, food factories, everything is run on computers. So as a computer security guy, my job has changed. It's not to secure computers, it's to secure the whole society, because the whole society runs on computers. And the key problem we have around smart devices, the kind of devices we buy for our homes, is that the most important selling point for home accessories, let's say you go and buy a new washing machine, what's the most important thing? Well, it's price. Price is the number one selling point for devices we buy into our home. The second most important question about the new washing machine you're about to buy might be how many kilos or pounds of laundry it might take in one go. Third question might be the color. Questions like, if it's a smart device, how secure is this device? Does it have a firewall? Does it have intrusion prevention technologies? Nobody is asking for questions like these. And that's problematic because then it automatically creates an environment where the vendors which actually invest into cybersecurity, the only thing they get out of the investment is that their product is now more expensive than the competitors because the features, the better security they have in their washing machine is a feature that nobody's asking for. And this is a market failure. Like the normal market doesn't work right because we should be securing all of these devices because everything is becoming a computer, but it's not being done because it costs money and price is the most important selling point. And the way we as a society typically fix market failures is by regulation. We regulate that it has to be done in a certain way. This is what we've done with, well, for example, electrical safety or fire safety, which means when you go and buy a new washing machine, you can be pretty sure that it's not going to catch fire and that it's not going to give you an electric shock. But it's highly likely that it will leak your Wi-Fi password to anybody who asks for it because that's not being done by the vendor and that's not being regulated by anybody. And that is a real problem. I found your chapter on geopolitics interesting as you listed the most visited websites in the world, mainly being in the US and China. Why is it do you think that European companies aren't featured as much? And considering that we are living in the technological revolution, is this a cause for concern? Yeah, that's a great point. I live in Finland. I've always been a big supporter for European technology companies. But the fact is, when you look around Europe and you look at the biggest technology companies we have, we don't have very many of them at all. The few success stories we have are very typically quickly sold to either United States or to China. And indeed, when you look at the most visited websites or the most popular mobile apps, they're all done by either United States or China. In fact, China is growing now much faster than anyone else. It's going to become 
a Chinese net in one way or another in the future, which of course I guess makes sense because most of the internet users are from China as well. It's quite surprising how United States has such a big part of the services we use because as amount of users, it's around 2% of the internet users are from, from United States. And it's even more weird when you think about the fact that the World Wide Web was invented in Europe. Europe is much bigger than United States by the amount of people or by the combined gross product. So it's remarkable how Europe is unable to generate technology success stories. And there's probably a lot of different reasons behind it. But the very least we should be aiming for is that when we have the occasional rare European success story, we should do everything we can to make sure it remains a European success story. Absolutely. Um, Mikkel, what is malware and how does it pose the largest single threat to internet security? Malware is the shorthand we use for malicious software. So that's the umbrella term for any code that you wouldn't like to be running on your system. And your system might be your computer or phone or your smart device. So malware doesn't appear by itself. It's always written by someone. So malware doesn't appear randomly or by magic. It's always that someone wants to create a piece of malicious software. Someone decides to write a worm or someone decides to exploit a security vulnerability or create a Trojan or a backdoor. And the history of malware is very long. It starts actually already from the 1980s, but it has never been a bigger problem as it is today. And the reason why it has become such a big problem is simply the fact that we live our lives through these devices today. Crime has gone from local to global. One of the examples I mention in the book is the fact that in 1992, 30 years ago, here in my home country of Finland, we had 114 bank robberies during that one year which is remarkable. Bank robbers walked into banks with guns to steal cash. Now, we don't have bank robberies anymore. The last one we had was 12 years ago. The reasons are obvious. We don't have banks anymore, or the few banks we have left, they don't have any cash anymore. So bank robbers have done the same thing everyone else has done. They have digitalized their work, and they've gone from stealing banks with guns into banking trojans and break into cryptocurrency exchanges and credit card theft and things like that. But most importantly, they've gone global. The bank robbers of 1992 were robbing the bank in their own town. They were robbing their own bank. That's what was happening. The criminals were from within the 10-mile radius of the bank. Today, when we become victims of online crime, the criminal is not local. They can be anywhere on the planet. And literally, they can be like on the other side of the planet. The one thing internet has done to crime is that it has deleted geography. It has deleted borders. It has deleted distance. And there's great upsides into deleting geography and the fact that companies can easily go global and we have global communication for free. That's great. But at the same time, it totally changes the crimes we face and the risk levels we have. And... With ransomware Trojans, where the cyber criminal will make money by locking us out of our memories that we preserve on digital devices, this is interesting because despite the unethical nature of it, you mention in the book that the criminals actually do need to have a good reputation, isn't it? 
Mm-hmm. That's right. That's why these cybercrime unicorn gangs have names. That's why they run websites. That's why they have logos. That's why they do branding. That's why even like normal people on the street might know some ransomware gangs by name, like Reveal or Reveal or Darkseid or maybe Alpha or Quantum. These are big gangs. They've operated for a long while. And by running these websites in the Tor Hidden Service, they post publicly the information about the victims, the companies they've hacked into which didn't pay the ransom. And then they leak information such as emails from the victims who didn't pay the ransom. And this creates this reputation for these ransomware gangs, which means when future victims get hit by one of these famous ransomware gangs, they know that, oh my God, we've been hit by ransomware. Oh my God, it's Ransom X. I've read about these guys. They've hit this and that organization, which didn't pay, and then they leave their files. So they do what they threaten to do. But then you also know from previous examples that, you know, the victims which did pay the ransom in Bitcoin or whatever cryptocurrency... They got their files back. So these criminal gangs try to build up a reputation that they are honest criminals. They are criminals, but they're honest criminals. If you play along their rules, if you pay the ransom, you will get your files back. Nothing will be leaked. If you don't, they will do exactly what they threatened to do. So they need a scary, dangerous, but fair reputation. And unbelievably, some even have support chat rooms, isn't it? Oh, yeah. There's plenty of ransomware gangs which actually negotiate with their victims and are able to post samples of the stolen data and might hackle down the ransom amount if there's good excuses for doing that. These gangs run their own data centers. They have their own HR units which recruit more criminals to work for them. Some of them seem to be running operations where they analyze the stolen bookkeeping data from the victim company so they can estimate exactly how much money they should be asking as ransom. It's so bad that I know at least two cases where ransomware gangs hit law enforcement organizations and put their data under ransom. And I know two cases where the law enforcement organization actually paid the ransom. So it's so bad that cops are paying money to the criminals to get their files back. And what kind of human error can be the cause of being a victim of ransomware? When we look at the root cause behind any ransomware case, in fact, any breach of computer security, It's always either a technical vulnerability or a human mistake. And these technical vulnerabilities are things like unpatched systems which contain software bugs, which then become vulnerabilities in interconnected systems. The human mistakes, human error, then typically is things like users clicking on the wrong link, falling for a phishing scam, giving away their credentials by accident, using the same password in every system, opening up the wrong attachment. And the only way we can fight these human mistakes is by education. And education is very slow and very hard. It's very hard to get this done right. And I'm calling for, as much as we can, move the responsibility away from the end users. Most end users cannot take the responsibility that we really would need And one of the practical things we can do to make it safer for end users to use these services is to use them from safer devices. 
a very good example there is that you can surf the web or run applications on your Windows laptop or on your iPad. And they might seem very similar, but the iPad is actually 100 times more safer. It's a closed environment. It's not programmable by the end user. Windows or MacBook or whatever normal computer, it's a programmable system, which means anybody can write code for it, anybody can run code on it. That's not the way, for example, iPads or iPhones work, and that makes them much more restricted, but also much more safe. is data the new uranium? <laughs> There's an old saying from at least 10 years ago that data is the new oil. And I kind of like that. Data is the new oil. You look at the most valuable companies in the world 30 years ago and they were all oil companies. Nowadays, the most valuable companies in the world are data companies. Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, so on. And if you work with oil... You have to worry about oil leaks. If you work with data, you have to worry about data leaks. That all makes a lot of sense. But when I was working with the data breach of a psychotherapy center a couple of years ago, I realized that the data that was stolen and leaked from that organization stays destructive for 100 years or so. And I started thinking that this is... This is not oil. This is more like uranium, because uranium is also very valuable. Data is the new uranium. Data is very valuable, but it's also very destructive, and it stays problematic almost forever. And exactly in the same way, uranium is very valuable, and it's very problematic for a very long time. So it may be a better metaphor for data than oil. And in the subchapter, Privacy is Dead, you say that privacy died because killing it was so profitable. And even though there is data encryption, it doesn't make the content invisible. Does that kind of link to what you're saying in terms of it doesn't die? Yep, that's right. And when you look at the business models of the biggest companies in the world, many of them make all of their money by profiling us end users and then selling access to us based on those profiles to advertisers. And this is not mandatory. When the web and when the internet itself started to become a thing in the early 1990s, history could have taken another course. We could be paying for content with money instead of paying for content without privacy. But because of various historical reasons, we ended up with this model where, for example, Google is the biggest ad agency in the world and the biggest social network in the world has, I believe, 37% of the planet on it. And all of that is being monetized with profiling the end users. So... It is just so profitable to collect information about everyone. And that means privacy is dead and it died during our watch. Hmm. And you say that we are living in the golden age of intelligence. How are governments now adapting to this new era? Governments do nowadays realize very well the importance of the net, that it's the way you can win and lose an election. It's the way you can control large masses of people. It's the way you can collect intelligence about your enemies. So they very much are trying to control the internet in any way they can. And of course, the extremes of that 
we see in totalitarian states like China or North Korea and now increasingly Russia as well. But there is a fight going on about the future of the internet, who really controls it and through that who controls the citizens as well. And lastly, what I'd like to ask you is, it's not often you get to speak to someone who's been in this field for well over 30 years. So what would you say is the future of artificial intelligence and what trends in technology could you imagine happening? The first time I heard the whole term artificial intelligence was in 1983. I was 13 years old and I remember reading about this from a technology magazine. I couldn't understand how you could ever have a computer which would be more intelligent than a human. But then again, at the time, in 1980s, the way they were speaking about this is that the measure for human intelligence was beating a computer in chess. So if we one day will have a computer which is able to beat a chess grandmaster in chess, then we know computers are more intelligent than humans. Well, of course, that has happened like 15 years ago, 20 years ago, but computers are now getting more and more creative as well, and eventually they will replace humans in creative areas as well, like art and music and lyrics and poems, which sucks, but it's going to happen. They will be better than we humans in all of these creative things, and it's not what we would like to see happening, but it's going to happen nevertheless. And it's going to be a painful revolution, but it's not going to be the first time. 300 years ago, we invented artificial power, not intelligence, but power in the form of steam engine and then electrical engine. And that was a really painful revolution as well. A lot of people got unemployed because of artificial power. A lot of people will get unemployed because of artificial intelligence. And we might not agree, we might not like it, but it will be happening. That was Mikko Hopenin, author of the book, If It's Safe, It's Vulnerable. The book and audiobook is available now, which I do recommend you to pick up and read or to give a listen to. A big thank you to Mikko for coming onto the podcast and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the episode, please do rate the podcast and check out some of the previous ones if you haven't done already. And until then, I'll catch you on the next.